Okay. Okay, if you currently have a car, or if you've ever owned a car in your life, then I'm sure you know that from time to time, every now and again, it's probably wise to have the wheels on your car to have them balanced. We know that, don't we? It's wise now and again to have your wheels balanced. That what can happen because of the many potholes in the roads around London is that the wheels can become ever so slightly misaligned. Uh, can't they? And what happens when your tyres are misaligned? The tyres can, can fray. In fact, the, the car can begin to handle rather badly. It's quite a thought, really. Uh, that a tiny little misalignment in the wheels can actually have some potentially disastrous uh, consequences. Well, I think that is also true spiritually. Isn't it? That as we travel along the highway of the Christian experience... That because of the bumps that we encounter and the scrapes that we have, that potentially what can happen is that our view of the Lord Jesus Christ, our understanding of the gospel, can go ever so slightly astray, can go off center, leading to potentially catastrophic spiritual consequences for us. Well, tonight, this evening, the hope is this, that the Lord God will balance our spiritual heroes. The hope is that as we study the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 14, that tonight the Holy Spirit will ensure that we are ready to continue this journey that we're on, this journey of the Christian uh, life. And the sermon tonight, you know, it really, I suppose it revolves around one word. And it's a, a, a common word that we use in church, but it's a very often misunderstood word. It's this word, the word legalism. Legalism. And uh, the first thing that we, we need to note from this section of scripture is a case study in legalism. Okay, case study in legalism. So let's look at First Samuel 14. Tell you what, let me, let me do something odd for a change. Let me do something different here. Let me give you the conclusion to this first point just now. Okay, let's not wait until the end of the first point. Let's just go for the the conclusion right now. I think 1 Samuel 14, here we are shown that in God's eyes, it is absolute folly to focus merely on the external things of the Christian faith. That's First Samuel 14. I think that's the, the main point that we've got here. From God's point of view, it is daft. More than that, it is sinful for us only to focus on the outward stuff. You know, the routines and the rituals of the Christian faith. That's, that's the main point. Now, there's the conclusion. How do we get there? Like, how do we get to the conclusion? Well, in the second section of First Samuel 14, three times, that's what King Saul does. Three times here, Saul focuses not on the real stuff, you know, not on the heart stuff. He focuses on the external stuff of religion. And what I want to do is just, as briefly as I can, is just to show you the three times he does this, that he focuses on the external stuff. So you'll follow me for these three, right? First of all, did you notice that he, he, what does he do? He, He makes a vow, doesn't he? Makes a vow. Um, friends, was it helpful uh, this evening to read the first half of First Samuel 14? 
I think it was, wasn't it? I mean, it's been a few weeks, but especially if you're visiting, it's, it's probably it's probably helpful. But it's been a few weeks since we've we've been in First Samuel. So, so, do you see what happened in the first half? It was that brilliant portion of scripture we looked at. Do you remember it? Where it was Jonathan and his armor bearer, and just the two of them. They just they they take on the Philistines. Do you remember it? And the Philistines just scatter. There's anxiety, and they begin to flee. Now, as we come into the second section of this portion of Scripture, do you see what happens? Just before King Saul sends his troops to chase the Philistines, what does he do? Did you pick up on it? What does he do? He pronounces a vow. He makes all of the troops enter into an oath. And what was the content of the vow? They're not allowed to eat anything. Not allowed to eat anything at all for the duration of the battle, for the duration of this chase. And you've got to be with me. That's just madness, right? Like, it's just so foolish. Like, just at the very point that you would want your soldiers to be full of energy, chasing down the, the enemy, they're not going to have, they're not going to have any energy whatsoever. But maybe you see what Saul's doing. Do you? Why does he pronounce this oath, this vow? What is it, what's he doing? Do you understand that in a sort of superstitious type of a way, He's trying to get God on side. That's why he wants him to fast. That's what the vow's about. The justice. Do you remember earlier on in the book? Do you remember what the people did? They brought the Ark of the Covenant into battle. Like it was a lucky charm. Do you remember this? That's what Saul's doing with this vow. That's what he's doing with this oath. He's just trying to act, to try and sort of bend God to his, you know, to earn God's favor. Do you see what it is? It's not, it's not stuff of the heart. What is it? It's posturing. That's all it is. It's external stuff. It's outward religious activity, this vow, this fasting. So that's the first one. Second external thing he does, did you notice that he builds, what does he build? You notice it? He builds an altar. He builds an altar. This past week, uh, I felt I could absolutely relate to uh, the soldiers here in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Not because I was in battle, but because I made a schoolboy error this past week. What I did was I went to a church meeting, but I forgot to have my tea. I forgot to have my dinner before I went to the church meeting. And you maybe know what that's like. Church meetings can go on and on a little bit. And you're in that embarrassing moment where you're, you're in a meeting and you can hear your, you can hear your tummy rumbling there and you're a bit embarrassed whether other people are feeling the, or hearing the same thing. And I've got home and I was absolutely starving. But I woke up the next morning and opened this and I was like, oh, I can understand. These guys fasting. I, I can, I can feel their pain. I can empathize. Now, they're hungry, right? What did they do? The fast finishes at nightfall, and they get as many animals as they can, and they slaughter them, and they eat them. What's the problem? They break God's law. Did you notice that? They ignore the proper procedure for killing and eating the animals, and what do they do? They eat the animals with blood in it. Now, let me turn this over to you, okay? Do you remember why that's so wrong from Leviticus? Why, why shouldn't they do this? Why shouldn't they eat the meat with the blood in it? Why? Because the blood, the blood was symbolic to their God. Wasn't it? The blood was special. The blood was sacred. The life of the animal 
was seen to be in the very blood of the other. The blood was what atoned for sin. And what are these men doing? Ignoring that law. Breaking the law. Now we've got to be, got to be careful. Very careful with the text. Because you could be thinking, well, good on Saul. Because what does Saul do? Saul stops this, doesn't he? He puts an end to all this eating and meat with the blood in it. And you and I could be thinking, oh, that looks pretty good. King Saul seems to have turned over a new leaf. He's doing something holy and good for a change. Sounds good. Be careful. Because that's not what the text says. In fact, the text, the tone of the text, is very condemnatory towards Saul. And maybe you see why. Who is Saul? He's the king of these wicked people. I mean, he's the of all these people who are breaking God's law. So what should he be doing? He should be doing an Ezra, shouldn't he? He should be tearing his clothes. And he should be repenting. He should be leading them in contrition. And what does he do? He builds something. He builds an altar. And the text laughs and scoffs at him and says, It's the first time you've bothered to do it. Do you see, it's not his heart. His heart's not engaged here. His hands are engaged here. It's not Godward thinking. It's not sincere. It's external religion. And then the third, Saul externally acts, outward acts, by casting lots. And here we see, here we see what a complete fool Saul was spiritually. I mean, what do you think of this chapter, the second part of this chapter? It's, with, with, with all reverence, bearing in mind what we said this morning, it's quite complicated, isn't it? Do you think the second part of this chapter is quite difficult? But do you see what happens? Saul begins, he seems to almost have a change of heart and change of mind. He was wanting to rest, but then he says, no, let's chase these Philistines more. But what does he not do? He does not take that to God. And it leads to this very unusual moment in the text. I wonder if you noticed it. The priest almost has to tap Saul on the shoulder and say, excuse me, Saul, you're the king. Are you not going to bring your plans to your God? And here's the thing. What is the problem when Saul does this? Now, this is the heart of everything, friends. Please listen to this. What happens? Saul brings it to God. And what does God do? God says, nothing. There is this spiritual tumbleweed moment in 1 Samuel chapter 14. That God is silent to the king of Israel. And I'm saying to you tonight, what would you expect Saul to do? I mean, put yourself in his shoes. He calls out to God and God says, nothing. He answers him, not a jot, does not say a word. What do you expect to see from Saul? What would you do? You'd be contrite. Wouldn't you search your own soul? It'd be introspection. Wouldn't you be repenting of your ridiculous vow? And what does Saul do? What does he do? He enters into this incredible religious charade. Out with it. What is it? Urim and Thummim. Casting lots. Gets the whole army. Narrows down the whole army. No contrition. No repentance. 
just external religious activity. Do you see the point? Three times in the text, he is superficial before the Lord God Almighty. Now, listen, please. See, when it comes to legalism, what do we always do? We always project that onto other people. Isn't that what we do in the, cha- in, the t- in, in the church? And we think about this idea of people focusing on the external things of religion and thinking that that, and we think about other people. Like we think about nominal Christianity, don't we? We maybe think about the Catholic Church. We think even about the way that society behaves. People think, oh, it's activity that pleases God. I want to say this to you tonight. Legalism is a problem for you and for me. Like even if you have been a Christian for 70 years, then the vestiges of legalism still are there. They still lie in the, in the pit of your heart. They really, 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 really do. I mean, who here tonight can honestly say, oh, I've never done what Saul's done? Like, who here has never come to church and just gone through the motions? Do you know what? You might be doing that tonight. Are you? And here, uh, not engaged before God, just going through the motions. It's just your routine. It's what you do. We do that, don't we? What about the reading of the Bible? Think about what we talked about this morning. Isn't it true that sometimes we're just on autopilot with scripture? It's a religious activity. We just go through the motions. We're just going through it, just going through it, thinking, oh, this will please God. We do this. Well, friends, do you see what we've got before us in scripture? We've got another one of those first Samuel contrasts, don't we? God is not just saying to us tonight, don't be like King Saul. God is surely saying, be like a son. Remember, be like Jonathan. Be bold, walk in faith. Friends, what pleases God is not your habits. What pleases God is your holiness. Like what pleases God is not just your little routines. What pleases God is repentance. What pleases God is not just our rituals. It is an active, loving, sincere relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the consequences of legalism. It's often said, isn't it, that we live in a highly individualized society. Highly individualized society. You see what I mean, I'm sure. That where maybe your parents' generation or the generation beyond that, where they prioritized the community, didn't they? People cared about the community, didn't they? They cared about society. Things have changed. And what about the 21st century world? What do people care about? Themselves. It's individualized, right? The world is about self. Something that has infiltrated the church. And you can see it. If we just think about ourselves and our Christian walk, we think about the Christian walk, what do you think about? You think about yourself and God. We don't very often think about how that affects other people, how it affects the church. Individualized. Well, this evening I want to encourage you to consider the influence that you do have as a Christian. In fact, I actually want to go a little step further than that. And I want to pose to you a question. It's this. Have you ever thought of yourself as a leader? 
Have you ever thought into that, that you as a Christian are a leader? And you are. You are. I'll show you what I mean. If you're a parent in here, ah, yes, you're a leader, aren't you? You're leading your children. You have influence over your children for good or for ill in spiritual matters. You lead. If you're a communicant member of this congregation, you are also a leader. You're leading the covenant kids by your example. That's a thought, isn't it? If you're an office bearer, yep, lead. Don't you? In fact, isn't it true that all of us as Christians, what are we trying to do? What is the mission of the church? What are we trying to do? We are trying to lead unbelievers to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? Do you see it? When we pick it apart, it's very obvious. It's very simple. We have influence over people. In a sense, you could say, as Christians, we are leaders. Now, bear that in mind and listen. I think here we learn a very important lesson from Saul, but Saul as king. We learn that our legalism can have potentially disastrous consequences for those we lead. Let me say that again, make sure you get it. Our legalism, if we are legalistic, it is disastrous for the people over whom we have influence. And again, I think we see that in a few directions. First of all, we see that our legalism will leave people empty. And I want us to do this. I know it's getting late and it's a Sunday night, but bear with me. Let's try and and put ourselves in the context. Like boys at the front here. Okay, I'll speak to you for a moment. Did you see where we are at the start here? There's mention of a forest. It's a great scene. It's quite an exhilarating scene. Because do you see what happens? All of a sudden, 600 soldiers of Saul... They come shooting past us, don't they? And they come straight into the trees and they're chasing the Philistine army. Now, what is it that they see when they come running in the trees? In the land of milk and honey, what do they see? They see bees, don't they? And they see honey dripping from the trees. And Jonathan, Jonathan takes some of that honey. But what about the rest, the 600 soldiers? What, yeah, do they have any? No, nothing at all. In fact, I wonder if you noticed this. This is important. Twice in the text, twice it is underlined, emphasized, that the men were left faint. The men were left empty. They were left utterly weak. And why was that? All because Saul had added to Scripture. All because Saul had added... To God's law, this extra biblical rule about fasting. And I want to say this to you friends tonight. If we add to the gospel, if we add to what God has demanded for salvation, the same will be true for you and for me. See, the people over whom we have influence, they will be deprived of the honey of the gospel. You understand that? If we add to the gospel the people that we lead, the people over whom we have influence, they will be left empty. They will be left spiritually faint. Their eyes will not be brightened by the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we also see, and listen, we see that our legalism hardens people to God. Our legalism, isn't that a thought? Think of it for yourself. If we are legalistic, we harden people to God. Because think about these troops. 
You saw the picture, didn't you? They're slaughtering these animals and they're just munching all of this blood and they're breaking God's law. Now, who is to blame for that disgusting, unholy scene? Who's to blame? It's Saul again, isn't it? Because he's added to God's law. He's not just left his men hungry. He's added to God's law and this is hardened them all to God. They are now happy to disobey God. He's turned all of these men, the men he leads, he's turned them away from God. And isn't that going to be the same for you and for me? Friends, in our parenting, in our witnessing, we mustn't focus exclusively on the rules and the regulations of the Christian faith. And how often do we do that? Mums and dads in here, don't we do that all the time? You know, our kids, we think we're teaching them the gospel and we, we talk about Sabbath observance. And we talk about coming to church on a Sunday. We talk about you must be praying before you go to bed. Same when we witness. You know, we talk about what? We talk about what we do as Christians and what we should not do. Friends, if we focus, if we express that Christianity is only about rules and not about the saving blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is going to happen to those people under us? What's going to happen? This is going to happen. That we are going to leave the people that we lead, we are going to leave them hardened and hardened to Almighty God. And third of these, the last of these, our legalism will turn people away from you. Do you see how this uh, portion of scripture ends? Do you notice how it ends? It's an, it's an unusual ending because you saw that they're casting lots and Jonathan is identified. He's the one who took the honey, <laughs> isn't he? And he's there. And amazingly, his dad is willing to see his son be put to death. And how does he escape? Who comes to Jonathan's rescue? Did you notice? The people come to Jonathan's rescue. They do. And why? How do they do it? They turn against Saul. The people overrule the king. And the very end of this chapter shows us what a fool Saul is. It shows us that he's an impotent king. He's a pathetic king. The last picture there is the people not respecting Saul. And friends, I've got to warn you. If we're legalistic in our witness and in the way we live, that's your future. The people will turn against us if we convey that Christianity is just about rules and not about the Lord Jesus Christ people are going to not just be hardened to God, they're going to be hardened to you and to me and maybe you say back to me, who cares if people reject us and our influence is lessened, who cares isn't that a big deal in a society like this we might be some of the only Christians, these people know. Do you see the message here? Our legalism is dangerous for ourselves. Our legalism is dangerous for those in our lives. And the last thing this evening, the last thing this Lord's Day, we see the counter to legalism. The counter to legalism. We've talked in the church in recent weeks about questions 
that we ask when reading the Bible, haven't we? We've talked about, let's uh, say tomorrow morning you get up and you're going to begin your Monday, your working week, and you're going to begin it with God's word. What questions should you ask of Holy Scripture? Remember we've talked about this before? Well, a lot of people say, oh, we should ask this. What is God saying to me through this portion in Scripture? Ah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure that I would go along with that question. We should, though, I think, ask this. What does the text mean? Like, what did the text mean to the first recipient of this portion of Scripture? Ask that tomorrow morning. Other questions we should ask. We should ask, what does this portion of Scripture teach me about Almighty God? What does it teach me about my sin? What does it teach me about the way I'm supposed to live? Now, one often overlooked question that we should ask of Scripture is this. And I would encourage you from the bottom of my heart to ask this tomorrow morning. We ask of Scripture, what does this portion of the Bible teach me about God's plan of salvation? So tomorrow, let's say you're in the book of Numbers. You know, you're reading plans, taking you to Numbers or Leviticus. Maybe you're in Isaiah. You ask of that portion of Scripture, what does it teach me of Jesus? What do these verses teach me about what Christ has done for me? God's plan of salvation. Now, here we go. We end with this. We go at the end with this. If we ask that great question of 1 Samuel chapter 14, see what happens? Do you see what happens? We're reminded about something wonderful here. See, what, what do we see happens at the end of this portion of scripture? Jonathan is about to be put to death. There is a sentence of death over Saul's son. The lots have settled on him and the people know Jonathan is innocent. They know he's innocent. They know he didn't know anything about this lot. He's innocent. So what do the people do? Have a look with me. Look at verse 45. Verse 45. It says, So the people, they ransomed Jonathan. You see what that means? Leviticus made provision for a price that could be paid. That though there was a sentence of death over this man, that should sufficient appropriate payment be made by the sacrifice of animals, what could happen to Jonathan? He could be liberated. He could be set free. They ransomed Jonathan. And I wonder if you see tonight in that the wonder of the gospel of God. Because I ask you tonight, what is the glory of the gospel? Come on. How are we saved? What is the glory of the gospel? Is it that we are saved, that we have earned God's favor because of external religious activity? Is that the glory of the gospel, friends? No. The glory of the gospel is that First Samuel chapter 14 has been flicked on its head. Because it was we, the people, who were contempt, wasn't it? It was we, the people, who stood before God with a sentence of eternal death upon us. And what has the one, you see how it's flicked in his head, what has the one innocent man done? What has he done for us? He has liberated us. Hasn't he, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Lord Jesus has ransomed you. He has paid the price to set you free from sin eternally. And isn't it lovely? Because the chapter even tells us the price that has been paid. What's the price? What is the only thing that could see your soul saved from hell? What was it? What's the price? It was his precious blood. Isn't it? The only thing to set us free. That blood where the life lay, the blood that made atonement, that has been spilt, that the Lord Jesus Christ, the innocent one, he willingly paid that price. What is the glory of the gospel? It is not that we earn God's favor. It's not that we've been saved because we're religious. What's the glory of the gospel? We have been ransomed all by the spilt blood of the Lamb. We owe it all to Jesus. Friends, in light of 1 Samuel chapter 14, let us repent of our legalistic tendencies. And let's show the world that what delights the God of the Bible, it's not the external stuff, is it? What delights our God? Our repentance from sin, our love of him, and faith in his eternally begotten Son. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We praise you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Christ Jesus. Lord, we look at our hearts and we see that we are disgusting, filthy sinners. We have been angry this week at the people we love. We have uh, been awful at work. We have spoken in, in terrible ways. We have spent so little time on our knees before you. We have been foolish and egotistical. We deserve nothing. Yet our salvation is secure because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that his blood, that precious blood has been spilt. And because of that, we are ransomed. We are set free eternally. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.